Now is the time to reinforce your bowling arsenal. And BowlerX.com is the online leader in price, service, and selection. Get the new Track 300A with free shipping for $79.99. Hammer Nail Smoke and Fire for $89.99. And the Columbia Freeze Hybrid for only $64.99. Also check out the large selection of closeout and discontinued items at a fraction of their original cost. And while you're at BowlerX.com, be sure to enter the drawing for your chance to win a $500 shopping spree. BowlerX.com, your online Online bowling superstore and a proud sponsor of Above180.com. Looking to shoe up against the best in our sport? The Proprietors Cup is a true mega buck tournament. It takes place in Dayton, Ohio, July 12th through the 15th. If you think you have what it takes to compete against the best in the industry, then listen to this. The Ace Mitchell All-Star Team Challenge is a place where your five-man team can prove it and win $10,000. Here's how it works. Go to www.proprietorscup.com to fill out an entry blank. The singles event is slated for July 14th, and due to high demand, a women's and senior Megabucks tournament has been added. Check out their Facebook page and click like. Again, the website, proprietorscup.com, for all the details. Attention bowlers, would you like to help your stability in your approach and at the foul line? With Stability Strikes Bowling Performance Sock, you can enhance your stability and take the edge off any foot, knee, or back pain you may have while bowling. The extra mohair cushioning in the heel and toe gives you the comfort and support to compete at your maximum potential. So go to StabilityStrikes.com today. Stability in your game is just a pair away. BowlerX.com, your online bowling equipment superstore, presents the Above180.com podcast. Tim Berg and Joey Serrar are ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts, and the stars of the PBA. Now, from Washington, D.C., and the Bowler's Pro Shop in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, here are your hosts, Tim Berg and Joey Serrar. Continuing our bowling ball drilling for dummies, this portion two we're talking about. Want to just quickly recap. For the entire podcast, just go back above180.com if you've missed last week's show. Take a listen there. But briefly, what we touched on last week is we touched on uh, ball speed to rev rate ratio. We, we talked about how a pro shop operator is able to figure that out for you when you walk into the door and how he's able to match up your game and, and go from there. And then actually we also hit on a little bit regarding concerns about the podcast and, and, and a lot of the basic terminology of how dual-angle drilling came to part. So uh, without further ado, let's let's move on to next week. And and thanks, Joe, and thanks, Mo, again for joining us. Okay, Mo, uh, we'll finish uh, or we'll begin where we kind of finished off on on our first show. Uh, Speaking of the average PBA player having an 18-mile-an-hour speed off the hand, 375 rev rate, Uh, Joe Bowler walks into the pro shop, and let's say his speed is near the same, but his rev rate is 100 less at 275. We need to help create a ball motion similar to what he saw that PBA player show or throw on TV. And, and that can be done with the dual angle. Now, okay. uh, you want to touch base on exactly how that can be done, or is that going to be a little bit too entailed? Oh, that's fine. That's easy. Because the next thing we have to understand is what are the three phases of ball motion and how do they affect your success? For when a bowler lets go of a bowling ball, it goes through a skid phase, travels in a straight line towards the target, goes through a skid phase, and as the ball goes down the lane, the ball speed goes down, the rev rate goes up slightly, and the first and it starts to hook. 
The point where it starts to hook coming out of the skid phase is what we call the first transition. That's the transition where the ball starts to hook after it's been, after it's been skidding down the lane. Then it hooks for a period of time, and it gets to a certain point where it's rev rate, the rev rate of the bowling ball as it's going down the lane maximizes. And during this hook phase, which is just what it had gone through, skidded to the first transition, then it hooked to the second transition. As the ball went through the hook phase, it was losing rotation and tilt so that at the end of the hook phase, the ball's instantaneous axis rotation or the axis rotation in relation to the direction the ball's traveling is now zero. So then it goes into the roll phase. When the roll phase, the ball goes back into a straight line again until it hits the pins. Now, so the ball skids and hooks and rolls before it hits the pins. And the most common flaw in bowler's logic is they all think their ball should be hooking into the pins. If a bowling ball is hooking into the pins, it hasn't reached its maximum rate, and it hasn't lost all of its axis rotation. And if that's the case, it's just like your car in the winter. You're in, you're in Wisconsin. If your car is going in one direction and the wheels are turning in the other direction, you're in trouble, aren't you? Well, in the whole phase, that's right. what's happening. But- Mo, wouldn't that also affect the consistency of the ball's entering angle of entry if it's still in that hook phase? Yes, it is. Because if it's in the hook phase, it hasn't reached its maximum run rate and it hasn't reached its maximum entry angle yet. And most so importantly, that, maximum pin carry. That's correct. Because most of those affect pin carry. And people tell me, they say, I like to see my ball hook into the pocket. And I tell them, what, do you like to shoot at one pin spares? Because here's the axiom that we have to teach and have been teaching for 10 or 15 years. Bowling balls hit harder after they stop hooking than while they're hooking. Bowlers have to learn that. Yeah, we want to see the ball hook because when it hooks, it creates entry angle. But we want the ball to be in a heavy forward roll going into the pins so it goes through the pins properly to carry the pins. So we got to go skid. First transition, hook, second transition, roll. We want to see all three phases of ball motion before the ball hits the pins. Now you do, for the bowler's journal, you do the ball testing for that. And that's very critical to you when you're, when you're reviewing bowling balls is to make sure you got patterns and surfaces on the balls for the different styles of players. So you're an expert on this so that the ball is going through the proper phases before it hits the pins, correct? That is correct. Yeah. So that's what we have to know. Skid, first transition, hook, second transition, roll. So now we got a bowler that's on television. Now his ball will transition faster, go through all the transitions faster, if he is slightly rev dominant. If you're slightly speed dominant, more like the average amateur, your ball is going to have a harder time getting through those two phases, those three phases of ball motion before it hits the pins. So what we have to do is have a drilling technique where we can make your ball more responsive to the friction that it encounters as it's going down the lane. So that's where these dual angle drilling techniques come into play. Now, a, a quick question here, if I can interrupt. Sure. Are we, are we better off 
achieving this through layout technique or surface? You can do it both ways. And they'll do different things to the ball. Okay, now let's get into our dual angles. And it is a spherical geometry coordinate in angles, okay? Drilling angle. The drilling angle and the ball surface, okay, or and the aggressiveness of the cover stock on the ball, those are three right. factors. Those we have to take the ball in question. We, we can't compare right. a, a low-end, you know, 260 RG, 020 diff ball to a ball with, say, a 248 RG and a .060 differential. But the most important thing about the ball, and you know as I do, on the getting through the skid phase is the, is the cover stock. The chemical composition of the cover and how aggressive is that cover stock. Then we put a surface on it, whether it's duller or smoother, to modify that cover stock to adapt it to the bowler. But the first transition at the end of the skid phase is dominated by the cover stock and the drilling angle. They both affect it. And the covers by cover stock, I mean the inherent chemical nature of the cover as well as the surface that's on the ball. So the drilling angle is the bowler's way of using the cover stock properly to get the first transition on the lane at the right point down the lane. One of the things that, that me as a bowler, I, I'm always curious, and Joe, you kind of hit on it, Mo, you did as well, is, is talking about uh, the, co the cover of the ball. I mean, how much, how much cover really matters when it comes to uh, how a ball is going to take, take motion and shape down the lane? It is the most significant factor. It doesn't mean it's everything, but it is more significant than the core dynamics, which in turn are more significant than the static weight balances, which we used to think were very important, and now we found out that they're no more than 4 or 5% of the ball motion at any time. Now, now Mo, if you're saying that the cover, uh, let's say, strength affects that yeah. first skid phase the most, I, I have read somewhere where you stated that cover-dominant balls compared to core-dominant balls will always show more back-end motion. That's correct. But that so is what it, it, explain the, the difference here. Yeah, well, that's what happens in the hook phase. But if you have bowling ball, there are two components to a bowling ball. It's the core dynamics and the cover stock. Those are the only two components in a bowling ball. I don't care how you look at it. Okay? So if you have a ball with a super strong cover, the extreme case, super strong cover, and a medium or weaker core, we'll call that a cover-dominant ball. Cover Such dominant as the ball, locomotion. Right, like the locomotion. That's correct. You, you read my, my blurb on that. Because we weaken the symmetrical core, we, drop, we raise the RG and lower the diffs on the symmetrical core by changing the density, and we drop the differential from 054 to 044. And at 044, that is a weaker core. It's not going to be as violent. It's not going to want to reach friction as much. But we used a not super strong, but the next level down cover. So that ball created a ball that gave you stronger back end reaction. The ball wanted to read the lane further down the lane, and the ball wanted to come around more continuously. Is that what you found, Joey? Uh, with the locomotion, now that's level four cover? Level four cover out of five, yes. 
Yeah, I would say with box finish, which, as you know, it comes uh, polished, I, we'd rate that ball as kind of an average cover strength. But when we surfaced the locomotion, say, down to like a you know, 500, 2,000 grit, uh, we really saw the, the level 4 strength rating that that cover has. That ball's a lot stronger than I, I think you're giving it credit for, Mo. Oh, yeah, it is because you, the, the inherent potential in the cover was there. So when you scuffed it, and made it duller to bring the cover to life, then the cover took over the ball hooked a lot more than it did out of the box, correct? It changed quite a bit more than comparable balls from other manufacturers with same core dynamics or very similar core dynamics. In other words, that cover has a wider range of hookability and motion with different surfaces, at least what we saw, than some other products on the market. Well, thank you very much. It, 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 it's always nice when you're a designer for somebody to tell you the ball did what you intended it to do. Thanks. Hey, Mo, if I'd like to next, I'd like to hit on an email that we received from a listener, uh, Ken, who's, who's down in Australia listening to the uh, podcast. He heard we were going to have you on, so he, he had a question for you, and it deals with kind of what we're talking about right now. Uh, he says that he's, he's noticed that many bowling people talk about certain and manufacturers also talk about uh, greater hitting power than other bowling balls and, and manufacturers. He's, he's asking, can you describe hitting power, and is it simply a function of optimal roll and release as the ball enters a pocket, or can drilling techniques influence the so-called hitting power? Hitting power is, is the bowling ball displaying the characteristics that will maximize your scoring potential. Now, hitting power to me, when I talk about it, and Joey, you can chime in here on this, is how does the ball go through the pins? Does it go through the pins properly to maximize strike percentage? That's what it's all about. And to me, that is all about taking the inherent characteristics of the core and of the cover of the design ball and adapting the drilling technique properly to the bowler's skill set so that the ball goes through the pins the best. How would you describe it, Joey? Well, you know, I, I kind of look at it a little bit differently, even though I, I agree with your uh, summation. Hitting power is one thing. Some balls do have a louder crack or, or let's say, volume when, when they enter the pocket and hit the pins, and yet other balls have a better carry percentage. Now, we always look at carrying percentage being a better feature than hitting power. Uh, you know, no matter how hard a ball hits, if it's not carrying the pins in the back row. My definition, carry percentage is hitting power. Because hitting power well, it can, is... It, it can be. It can be. But we, we, we've had some balls, Mo, that tend to have a softer hit where they don't sound as impressive, but they get the job done better than other balls that seem to hit harder. Well... That's just your observation. And yes, exactly. that could be coefficient of restitution getting involved there too, which we won't even get into that. That's just a technical term. But to me, I define hitting power as strike percentage. If you hit the pocket 10 times with this ball drill properly, are you going to carry 5, 6, 7, or 8, or 9 strikes if you hit the pocket 10 times. That, to me, that's how I define hitting power. If I get a ball 
that hits the pocket ten times and strikes seven or more times, I'm saying that that ball's got good hitting power. If it's striking okay, less and, than seven and times. And the, the way we determine it, Mo, if I can interject here, say two balls in, in ten shots both carry seven out of ten shots. The one ball, ball A, the three it doesn't carry are solid nine pins. Ball B, the three it doesn't carry are three weak ten pins. To me, yeah. ball A had harder hitting power or better hitting power, but the carry percentage was the same on both products. Yes, but you're right. It has more hitting power. That's very good that you bring that up, Joey, because the nine pin is a strong hit. And remember the old days they used to say that the eight pin was the perfect tap? It ain't. Yes. Sevens, eight, for right-handers, seven, eights, and tens, whether they sound or don't, the vast majority of them are weak hits, but you can have a solid seven pin, too. Yes. The small percentage, you know what I'm talking about, that rock-solid seven. But yes. definitely nine pins are balls that don't deflect as much. So nine pins are strong hits. Some seven pins are strong hits. Four pins are stronger hits. And... Most of your seven pins, the swishing sevens, the sevens, the eights, and the tens are all weak hits. And I, in all my seminars, and you've served my seminars, I say the same thing, and I use it all the time. Every ten pin you leave is caused by deflection. The only reason we call it a solid ten pin is we like to feel better about ourselves. I totally agree with you. And, uh, you know, it, it's... It's all about perception, you know. I mean, if the bowler that had ball A and carried 7 out of 10 but left the 9-pin feels much better about himself than the bowler that had the same amount of strikes but left three weak 10-pins. Uh, I'll take Chris Barnes mentioned to me once. He says, you know, Joe, the difference I see between a PBA bowler and, and a top amateur, most of us pros look for the earliest break point on the lane with good carry, most amateurs look for the latest, sharpest breakpoint with perceived good carry. Yet, I don't mind if I leave back-to-back -back weak 10-pins because typically wherever I see a soft 10-pin, there's a five-bagger right next door to it. You know, it's really interesting. I had a gentleman, I had a lesson yesterday, and I was working out of Raleigh, North Carolina. In fact, that's where I am today, uh, where he drove 750 miles for a lesson. He had been to a couple other places, and then he drove back home. He was very satisfied when he left. And he's an older player, and he'd been in the pro shop business a little bit, and he'd worked, you know, a bowling alley rat that had just sure. matured. He's in, his, he's in his early 50s. And he kept looking for later break points, and I kept moving the break point closer to the foul line. I kept getting the ball to strike. He couldn't get it to strike because he wanted to see the ball hook into the pins. The old-fashioned notion He's, he wanted to see the ball motion he had in, in the 80s. And that's a much weaker ball motion than we have today. You're talking about it exactly right. And, and, and it's interesting. Let's go past last year because Walter didn't have a good year last year. But for the five or six previous years prior to last year, Walter A. Williams and Chris Barnes were the two most successful right-handers on the PBA Tour. They were always fighting it out for bowler of the year. They were always up there, okay? And both those players play early break points, and everybody who's trying to beat them is trying to play a later break point. And I have a question for you. What's wrong with this picture? Well, it, it's, it's all the visual that a bowler gets. I mean, some customers, or at least that I experience, are happy with poor carry if they get the visual they like to see and still shoot, say, 630 on a given night.
whereas the more educated bowler is not happy if he even if he sees what he likes to see he know, he knows that's not always correct whereas he could go to a bullet that reads the lane two or three feet sooner shoot a hundred pins more and not throw the ball any better but his matchup is better that's exactly right and that is so true oh i get i do tons of lessons i get people come down here say that ball's rolling too soon i said no it's not rolling soon enough let's put a little more surface on it to get it to go through its transitions faster, and all of a sudden their strike percentage goes up. This is, that's not what I want to see. Let's get the ball further down the lane. Get the ball further down the lane, reduce the surface, and he's 7-pin, 9-pin, 8-pin, 10-pin, and then eventually he gets that good old-fashioned blower 7-pin. And that's all balls that don't transition soon enough. And I tell bowlers when I'm working with them, if you're leaving something in the back row, other than a nine pin for a right-hander, okay, your ball isn't entering the roll phase soon enough. Your ball hasn't gotten through the second transition soon enough. That's the way I look at it. Tim Berg, Joe Sarar, Mopinel back here. Segment uh, section two, series two of our bowling ball for uh, bowling ball slash for dummies slash drilling layouts for dummies segment we've been doing here. Kind of a special over the summer. Thought we would kind of try to inform bowlers. Uh, Mo, you hit on a very interesting point there because I, I mentioned this to Joe and I've mentioned this to a couple other people, so I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I went up and bowled a tournament, and uh, we're talking a lot about entry angle and nine pins and stuff, and I went and through a four-game set, I left 12 nine pins. I left three nine pins a game, ended up shooting 804 for four. But I kind of talked to Joe, and, and my thought was I didn't move. I should have moved, but I didn't move anything because I thought, okay, I, I can't keep doing this because I'm not, as Joe will, will attest, I'm not a, a high rev player. I'm probably evenly matched like we talked last podcast, maybe slightly uh, speed dominant over rev dominant, but I was just kind of, my mindset was, look, I can't keep doing this. And by about the third game, I thought, all right, enough's enough. I did finally move, but I'd love to get your take on someone who's then is leaving too many nine pins. What, what do you recommend for them? They just snug their feet slightly more inside so the ball... Uh, doesn't get as high flush in the pocket, and they'll carry better. And they'll only carry this, their their swishers. Yeah, it's it, it's about moving. And if you're getting tapped, you got to do something, and it may only be a, a small move. And so, what is the point that I mean? Should I have done that after after I left two of them? Do you move, or is there really no magic number, no set in stone number? By the time I left the third nine pin, I'd have been moving. What do you say, Joey? Well. I would base it off, Tim, of how well the ball came off your hand. You know, every once in a while, you get that highlight reel release where it was as pure as the driven snow. You leave a stone nine, but you know typically your normal release is not that clean. Then I wouldn't have moved if you had that type release. If it's your normal release where it was a good release but not a great release and you leave back-to-back nines, obviously you move off of that because that's typically... Your, your hand action. In other words, it's not going to get better or worse. It's going to stay in that little range. So I, I would have moved after probably the, the second one. Yeah, I'm a little older and a little more conservative. Oh, that's a lie. Uh, I'm a little bit older, <laughs> I, uh, maybe a little more hard-headed. I'd have moved after three. But two or three, yeah, about the third, second or third time I saw it, I'd say, you know what? I got a little room here to get, to get my feet a little further left so the ball doesn't actually overhit. The ball didn't deflect enough. You can have a ball go through and not deflect enough. And what I actually right. did that in ended other words, up- we, we need to see that ball kind of roll through the pins more, Tim, as opposed to being too angular upon entry. 
And what right, ended up actually working right. for me, guys. This is an interesting point. When I started doing ball motion studies with Danny Speranza back in uh, Milwaukee in 92, 93, where they developed the system of bowling, the perfect strike, by definition in those days, was a ball that entered the pocket 17 and a half inches in from the right edge of the lane and went off the back of the deck 17 and a half inches in from the right edge of the lane. That was the old-fashioned perfect strike, correct, Joey? Yes, definitely. Okay, now let me tell you what the perfect strike is today. Perfect strike today is entering the pocket 17 and a half inches in from the right edge of the lane, going off the back of the deck 21 inches from the right edge of the lane, which is the center of the lane, which means the ball splits the 8-9. And the, in the old days, we said the ball, on a perfect strike, the ball hit the 1, the, the one, the 3, the 5, and the 9. On a yes. perfect strike today, the ball hits the 1, the 3, the 5, the 8, and the 9. So ball technology, lane friction, cover stocks, everything can be equated to the fact that we decreased deflection by three and a half inches in two decades. That's my definition of what's happened with technology. Deflection is down three and a half inches in two decades. And where is it going to be in another decade? Well, the perfect strike is still hitting the eight nine. We'll be using weaker drilling techniques and changing the dual angle layout so the ball does what we want it to do. Or will we have a, a, a third type or a fourth type of lane surface that lessens friction overall as opposed to just a different oil or weaker drillings? I doubt if we'll have that. And I'll tell you why I doubt if we'll have that. It's all an economic issue. Trying to change lane surfaces and develop new lane, lane surface technology is a very, very expensive process. And economics... It's just an economic world. There's a lot of things I'd love to do in bowling and a lot of people would love to do, but if our industry doesn't generate the profitability, guess what? We ain't going to get the resources to do it. How about that, Joe? Yeah, and, and we, we do need to think about economics as well, especially in the economy the way it's been. You know, that, that our little recession kind of began in around 2007. At that time, my Nostradamus prediction was, eh, five years, we'll be back to normal. Well, here it is five years later, and it's not much better. In fact, it may be another five years before we see the U.S. economy bounce back. If it does it in, in less than three, it will be a miracle. And you want to know something? I don't think we want to talk about that political football. No, no. So, getting back to Chris Barnes, his words of yeah. wisdom when it came to the earlier breakpoint. Uh, again, that's how he felt top PBA players differed from top amateurs. The PBA players like to see the earlier breakpoint. I said, well, right. what other reason is there other than, or why do you think that is? And Chris's response was quite simply, each game we bowl, we bowl on different pairs. We don't park it on the same pair and, and go. We're changing pairs constantly after each game. We need to see that break point as not to be fooled. He says when, when we use too late of a break point, that break point is going to be a little bit harder for us to visually see when we make our changes. And we don't want to go 
210, blower 710, big four, because the breakpoint's difficult to, to get a visual on. Whereas when we see that breakpoint being earlier, we might leave two pin, soft 10 pin, but at least we can maintain the pocket more. Yeah, what he's talking about is getting control of the transitions front to back on the lane is more important than side to side. Much more important. They hit their targets better than, than the average amateur. But you first thing you got to do when you're, when, you're, when you're adapting to a lane condition is get control of the front to back motion of the ball and then find the pocket. Now, in your opinion, Mo, what is the best way to achieve that through aggressive ball surface or lower drill angles or stronger products in your hand? Any one of the three. Any one no, of the three. Your, the your choice. You as a ball driller, you have tools, tools available to you when a customer comes in and wants to be more successful. You can choose a certain ball for them. Then you can modify the motion to adapt to their style with the drilling technique. And then you can place the final surfaces on the ball. So that, But you've got all three tools available to you. It's tricky right. and, when a guy and, comes in and says, I want that ball and you know that that ball isn't the right ball for him in terms of its motion potential. That's when you got to have all your skills about you so that you do the layout so that the ball he wants works the way it should work. In, in other words, right, a, a good ball driller, when a customer comes in and says, I'm not getting this type of reaction, my, my pin carry sucks, the first thing we will do is look at the product and say they have the right ball, we will obviously recommend a surface change first or possibly a strategically placed weight hole to give them the reaction they want first, let them throw it, then if that motion is still not quite what they need, then we start considering a different product. Yes, exactly. But you know as well as I do that every ball manufacturer has a certain motion potential. And you've got to match that motion potential to the bowler by your drilling techniques and your surfacing techniques so that that ball works for that bowler. Now, you're, it's much easier for you to do your job when the customer who comes in the door allows you to help choose the ball for him. Not completely choose it. He's going to choose it, but allows you to guide him. But then you get that one card. You get those customers every once in a while that came in, and they want this ball because their buddy just shot 820 with it, and they know if he shot 820, they can shoot 830 with it. That's the more <laughs> difficult job, isn't it? Yes, it is, without a doubt. Without a doubt, yeah. But let's tie both our hands behind our back. Well, let's get back into drilling techniques. We're okay. talking about the first transition, getting the ball to change from skid to hook. And the choice of ball gives you the potential for the ball to transition that first transition. When you talk about drilling techniques that the, bowler has available, the ball driller has available to him, it's the drilling angle that allows the bowler, the ball driller, to tune the ball so that the first transition is at the right point on the lane. It's the drilling angle, as far as the drilling technique goes, it's the drilling angle that controls the first transition after you get rid of cover stock and surface. And the larger the drilling angle, with a maximum of 90 degrees as a guideline, there are drilling angles bigger, but I use 90 as a maximum guideline. The closer the drilling angle is to 90 degrees, the later, the more you will delay that first transition. 
the closer the drilling angle is to 10 degrees, which is what I use for a, a guideline for a minimum, okay, the sooner the first transition will occur. So the range of drilling angles is 10 to 90 degrees. If you go closer to 90, you're going to help push the ball down down the lane further. If you go closer to 10 degrees, you're going to get it to go into the hook phase earlier. Right. Now, will that also affect yeah, that's where I am. The, the overall shape of a ball hook, of a ball's hook mole? Uh, if we take, say, two bowlers with the same spec, same speed, rev rate, tilt, and and they have two of the same balls. One is drilled with a 90-degree drill angle. The other one, say, a 30-degree drill angle. Both balls mm -hmm. have a four-inch pin distance. And both balls, let's hypothetically say, have the pin four, 40 degrees from the valve. So we have a lot right. of constants here. Will the bowlers see a, a noticeable or dramatic difference in not just where it hooks, but the overall shape of the back end hook? It won't change the shape with the drilling angle. What you will change is the length of the skid phase. So, so the shape of the back end part of the lane, again, where bowlers like to see that visual before it enters that roll phase, is more controlled with the val angle than the drilling to val angle? The VAL angle will control the shape of the hook zone. The length of the hook zone and the shape of the hook zone. That will be with the VAL angle. The length of the skid phase or the distance the first transition is down the lane is the drilling angle. So the VAL angle gives you shape, the drilling angle gives you length. And then you can put in the PAP distance in there too. Okay, well that, that's the thing. I, I think you want to kind of coordinate uh, yeah. how they work together and how they work separately. Yeah, you coordinate how they work together because when you choose a certain drilling angle, then that affects your decisions you make on your pin to PAP distance and the VAL angle. But basically, the drilling angle will dominate the length of the skid phase as far as drilling techniques go. Then so so in, your, in your opinion, most bowlers, uh, let's, let's kind of group some bowlers into a category of being either rev dominant, slower speed, say senior players, uh, players bowling on wood lane surfaces that need all of these need help with the length of their the first phase should yeah. use typically say 50 60 degree drill angles and higher as opposed to lower drilling angles that's correct I would say 55 and higher I would say 50 I would say say 55 and 55 degrees and higher for bowlers that need to get the ball further down the lane because they either have high revs in relation to ball speed or they have low ball speed. That's, that's a good point about seniors. Senior players are mostly, even though they don't look like they do much to the ball, but compared to their ball speed, they are rev dominant. Don't you agree? Well, without a doubt. I would say easily 70 to 80 percent that, that we drill for are rev dominant, and, and that's more a byproduct of the lack of ball speed than it is any other factor. You're absolutely 100% correct on that one. So can we say diametrically opposed to that type of group of bowler, that the younger crowd, the, let's say, rev challenge group uh, that have more high speed than rev rates should utilize lower drilling angles to help lessen or shorten the skid phase? That's correct. 
Right, as well as ball surface. Get the ball to start reading the friction sooner. You definitely want to use smaller drilling angles for the rev dominant, for the speed dominant players. The guy who's trying to kill the mechanic on every shot, or the guy that just misses the release more often than he hits it. Right, or or even the the player that likes to play a little deeper on the lane than they maybe should for their particular specs. That's correct. That's absolutely correct, and that's the hardest thing to teach people to get the ball to read the pattern a little sooner. Most so mistakes I think, I, and most lack of scoring happens when the ball goes through the break point as opposed to a ball that reads the lane too soon. And I'll tell you where that's where that's where that becomes very obvious. If most touring players are slightly rev dominant, okay, and these are the guys that make a living at the game, those are the bowlers that tend to have earlier break points, correct? Without a doubt. So therefore, if you're an amateur, you need a ball that transitions a little earlier to be more successful like the players you watch and idolize on television. Boy, that ain't hard to figure out. That, that well, you know, it sure looks easy and, and it sounds easy when, when you say it that way. And, you know, so, so one thing we can, we can share with our, our listeners, uh, our five listeners, is they should definitely consider either using more surface on their ball if their carry has not been where they like it, lower drilling angles on future ball purchases, and right. what we haven't touched base on, but you and I know the importance of, is strategically placed weight holes in an existing ball in the P3 or P4 location, which can increase track flare and, and the ratios to help open up the flare rings, give that ball more responsiveness and more, uh, again, an earlier transition phase. The working, the, the working number I use is balance holes are 60% of all of the layout techniques. And the layout itself is is 40%. Now, on so that I note, I think we'll end part two of, of bowling ball layouts for dummies, and we'll save that for our third show, Mo, but when you can expound on the virtues of weight hole location and functionality as opposed to simply drilling layouts. Sure. Okay, you have been listening to the Above180.com podcast. Again, very insightful. If you've missed the first show, maybe you're just hopping in here, make sure you go back and listen to uh, our, se- our week one of this series where we get into uh, some of the very uh, the intricacies of, of how dual angle drilling began and talk about that. But, uh, again, make sure you check us out on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, uh, taking your bowling game to that next level. But want to wrap things up right now for Tim Berg, Joe Sarar, good luck and good bowling. 